Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lance. It is our goal to build up believers and reach out with God's truth to all people. Now here's today's message with Pastor Michael. We're in Acts chapter 16, three stories of transformation. We're going to look at verses 11 through 40, so we've got quite a bit of ground to cover. Beautiful stories of transformation, and let's pray one more time. Father, As we turn now to your holy word, we are so grateful that your word speaks. It doesn't come back void. It accomplishes what you want it to accomplish. It is the seed that you plant in people's hearts, and we want to be good soil, receptive to the word of God. And as we talk about transformation, you're a God of transformation. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And yet, Lord, we know transformation is also a process. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You're making us more into the image of our sweet Savior, Jesus Christ. That takes time, and we do know that it takes also patience. And thank you that you have patience for us, and that you're a God that continues to chisel away and make us more like your Son. And thank you that in Romans, when Paul is talking about salvation, He says not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's how we find out the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, by your word. And so we pray right now that this service would be laid at your feet, your Holy Spirit would move, we'd have ears to hear what the Spirit says to your church. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the the word transformation is used a couple times in the Bible. It's used in Romans 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. The word is metamorpho in Greek. It's where we get the English word metamorphosis. And so think of the idea of transformation as a metamorphosis, and it really means to change the essential nature of something or someone. That's the business that God is in. He is in the metamorphosizing business. He's in the transformation business. The moment that you get saved, he gives you a new nature, but we still wrestle with the old man or the old nature, and so transformation happens at the moment of salvation, but it is also an ongoing process for the believer. God is a transforming God. I started to think back over the last uh, quarter century now as a believer Somebody asked me recently, how long have you been in the ministry, Pastor Michael? I couldn't believe my answer. I've been in this position for 16 years, and it's been amazing, and it's been an amazing journey. So I started journaling a little bit last night about all that God has done in touching me with his grace, and then how that's extended out to others. And think of it this way, the trunk is salvation, your own transformation story, and then think of all that God has done I think of my marriage. I think of parenting my three boys. I think of being able to have the privilege of sharing the gospel with people. I think of soul family relationships in the body of Christ. I think of so many beautiful, wonderful things that God has done because he reached out to me with his grace and saved me and forever has changed not only my life here, but my destiny. You know, really, when you start thinking about all God has done, if, you, if you're able to look back and think about all the beautiful things that God has done. It's, it's really amazing. I remember listening to a radio program one time. It was a secular station, some sort of sports talk or something, just driving down the road. 
and a guy cynically was talking about a friend of his who had become a Christian. And he said these words. He said, he'll be back. What he meant by that is, you know, it's just a fad, my friend. And then, and then he said these words, they all come back. They, these people who confess this Christian thing, they all end up coming back to their old lifestyle. And the fact of the matter is, that's a lie. Because you are all living testimonies that people do stay walking with the Lord. I'm a living testimony. Now, I've tried to go back <laughs> on more than one occasion. I have to be perfectly blunt. It doesn't work. I don't know if you've noticed. Uh, the Holy Spirit convicts you, and you just can't, you know, you can't, your conscience and the Spirit in it, with your conscience, you just, it just changes your perspective on things. But the question God asked in the Bible is, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. That's Jeremiah 13.23. In that chapter, God's lamenting the fact that Israel doesn't want to change. So while it is true that God is a God of transformation, we do need to get on board with that and make sure we're allowing the things that bring transformation into our lives to be consistent. His word, fellowship, prayer, all those things that we need so desperately. One of my favorite stories of transformation comes from a family who lived in the sticks. They had never seen any technology whatsoever, pretty much been off by themselves. And they were invited, they won something, and they were invited to this grand hotel, all the technology, beautiful foyer and entrance. And so they went. It was mom and dad and a couple of kids. And they were so impressed, and they were just overwhelmed. Wow, look at this. They'd never seen any of this before. And they walked up to the elevator. They'd never seen an elevator before. Saw the lights, the shiny doors and everything. Wow, what is this thing, and how does it work? And bling! And so the doors open, a little old lady with a cane, she, she walked by them, and she went into the elevator. They didn't know what it was, and the door shut. And then about a minute later, bling, the doors open, and this beautiful woman walks out. <laughs> of the elevator. And the husband said, kids, go get your mother. Anyway, so, yeah. I should change that around and have the wife say, go get your dad, but, but I'm not that way. I got to take, anyway. So, <laughs> so Last time we saw all these closed doors, the missionaries are trying to move into other parts of Asia Minor. God closed the door. He closed the door. We talked about how God guides us last week. And now we, we come to the vision that Paul got. They were wondering, what should we do and where should we go? Acts 16, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia, I think the night that Paul, they had been wrestling about it, and a certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to Paul. He said, come over to Macedonia and help us. I want you to note the phrase, come and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. Now this is the beginning of the second missionary journey, as we mentioned last Sunday. We concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel uh, to them, the, the cry for help comes, and what was the conclusion? We need to go preach the gospel because the greatest way that we can help people is to introduce them to this God of transformation, amen? That's how your life has been helped, that's how their life will be helped in the ultimate sense. And so we concluded, we, 
we decided God closed these doors. He's opened this one. He's given Paul the vision. The man appears. Please come and help us. And so off they go. Therefore, Acts 16.11, in light of this, putting out to sea from Troas, which was on the coast. Remember, we're dealing with the area of Asia Minor. We ran a straight course to Samothrace. Samothrace was an island. I'll mention some things about that in a moment. And on the day following, to Neapolis. Now, this is a nautical expression. Notice in your Bible, it says, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course. That is a nautical expression to mean the wind was at their backs. They had to travel about 150 miles, and they did it in two days, which is quite remarkable. The wind was definitely at their back. Just by way of contrast, in Acts 20, verse 6, in the return trip, it took them five days to go back. And so the wind was at their back. And, and sometimes that's how we feel, you know, doors shut and then others open and we kind of feel like the breeze is at our back. Man, travels become easier. Uh, maybe the Lord's hand is definitely in this. Samothrace, where they stayed overnight, was an island. It is an island. Uh, it's, it's famous for the discovery of call, what's called the Nike of Samothrace. Nike is the Greek word for victory. It was uh, discovered, and uh, it is a 2nd century B.C. marble sculpture of the Greek goddess Nike or Victory. It was discovered in 1863. Since 1884, it has been prominently displayed in the Louvre. It was one of the most celebrated sculptures in the world. H.W. Jansen described it as the greatest masterpiece of Hellenistic, Hellenistic sculpture. I just mentioned it in passing because you might wonder, well, what's that about? What's that island about? Well, major discovery was uh, uh, put in the Louvre there. And so from there to Philippi, so they stayed overnight uh, on the island. The following day, verse 11, they went to Neapolis. Uh, from there to Philippi, about an eight-mile walk from the port city, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia. This is on the mainland of Greece. It was a Roman colony, and we were staying in the city for some days. So now they've arrived. This is the direction that God has guided them. Philippi was may well have been Luke's own home city. He's our author. Some facts about Philippi. Philippi was an ancient city renamed in 356 B.C. by Philip of Macedon. He was the father of Alexander the Great. He named the city Philippi after himself. I guess if you have a chance and you can name a city, why not? And so he did. He named the city Philippi. It was most well known because the Second Roman Civil War was fought on this location in 42 BC. It resulted in the defeat of Brutus and Cassius, who were the murderers of Julius Caesar. They had assassinated him. And after the battle, the victors settled in Philippi. They settled a number of veterans from the army in Philippi, and they made it a Roman colony. Some people say jokingly that Philippi was a Rome away from Rome because it had Roman laws and Roman leaders. And if you were a retired uh, army veteran there, you didn't have to pay taxes, and it felt like home to you even though it wasn't actually Rome. And so this would be really the first encounter, think with me, of witnessing in a Roman-dominated area. And so Paul's desire was to witness to Rome, and eventually he would get there. And so now here they are. They've come you know, to clash with the Roman ways, and little did Rome know how significant this moment was, because the Christian message would dominate the Roman world. 
And eventually Christianity would become the state religion of Rome after obviously a, a long battle. And so after the battle, after this Roman war, the victors settled there and this was the place. Octavian settled other colonists that uh, there after his vi- victory over Antony and Cleopatra, Cleopatra at Actium in 31 BC. So there were a lot of retired uh, veterans of the army, a lot of people who were Roman who were there at the city. It was kind of a little Roman empire. And on the Sabbath day, so now they've arrived at the port city of Neapolis. They took about an eight-mile walk inland to go to Philippi, and they began to look around and check things out. And Paul would always try to go to a synagogue on the Sabbath day. So notice what happens. On the Sabbath day, the Jewish day of worship, we, Luke includes himself, he's there with Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, four missionaries now in Europe. We went outside the gate to Riverside. I I didn't know if you knew that the Inland Empire was mentioned in your Bible. Just kidding. It says to a Riverside. That was just wishful thinking. We, we were supposing, no, Riverside's not in the Bible. Anyway, we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. Because there was no synagogue, what it took was you had to have 10 Jewish males who were head of households to begin a synagogue. And that obviously was not the case. And so what my understanding of what the Jews would do, and this comes from rabbinic sources, is they would find a body of water, and they would worship outside. It would be kind of like a church that didn't have a building, maybe meeting in a backyard. They found an outdoor spot by a body of water. It says in the writings, by a sea or a river. You may ask why. The answer is, I don't really know, but it may be that the water was for ritual cleansing involved in the worship of the Jews. Just, Just a possibility. And so on the Sabbath day, it appears that they've asked around town and they've been told on the Sabbath, the Jews go over here. They don't have a building, but they go over here and they worship. And so we went uh, outside the gate and it may be that there was anti-Semitism here because they were outside the main city. They went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that we would, uh, there would be a place of prayer. So they probably heard that some Jews met here. And we sat down and began speaking to the women. I want you to notice it was all women, no men who had assembled. Now you might say, well, what were the women doing? Well, it shouldn't shock us that it was all women at a prayer meeting. Because it seems like at prayer meetings it's mostly women for whatever reason. Yesterday I was blessed to see a bunch of women praying here at the prayer meeting once a month. Praise God that people are praying. And I'm not saying that guys don't go to prayer meetings. But this was all women And so they had assembled. What would they assemble to do? They would be reciting the Shema since they were Jewish. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one from Deuteronomy 6. They would pray the Shemaneth Esrei. They would read from the law and the prophets. And they would uh, certainly be seeking the God of Israel. They were worshipers. They were Jewish. And so Paul, remember, he had gotten a vision of a man. But when he goes by the river, what does he see? It's a total group of women. And so Paul, looking for an opportunity to preach the good news of the gospel, began to speak to the women who were assembled there. And I'm sure because he was a rabbi, he said, you know what, we've come here and we have a message and the women seem to be open. What's your message? Well, I want to tell you about the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And there was a certain woman there named Lydia, verse 14. She's going to be the first of three transformation stories. And this account has three stories which could mirror many of our stories. We all have a story of transformation. But these are three beautiful stories. These are all faces that would then be part of the church at Philippi, which Paul would write to later on. Now, a certain woman was there, and she was named Lydia. She was from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple fabrics, and she was a worshiper of God. It appears Lydia was a Gentile. She had been drawn to the God of Israel, probably not a full proselyte into Judaism, but she was drawn to the worship of the God of Israel. And she was, in all likelihood, a very well-to-do woman, and here's why. If you sold these purple fabrics in this day, day, it was made from a rare fish that they got the dye from, and they were very expensive garments. Only royalty and very wealthy people would, would wear these purple fabrics. And so Lydia, it may not even be her real name, Thyatira was mentioned in Revelation 2, one of the cities that are addressed there. And she may have taken on the name of the region, which literally there was a region called Lydia. It could have been her trade name. But whatever the case may be, she was kind of, here's how you could think of her. She was kind of a fashion designer to the stars. She sold the high-end garments to the high-end people. And in her life, she had discovered that that was still empty. And many of you have experienced corporate America or Hollywood. And you know, I mean, look at uh, every story that seems to come out. It's the next movie star, childhood star, who's blowing it and falling to drugs and in rehab and racing down the street, intoxicated and smoking pot. And a lot of these young people, grew up in Christian homes. And as a matter of fact, Miley Cyrus was interviewed by Barbara Walters years ago, and now she's pulling all her shenanigans. And, and Barbara asked her a very direct, I think very insightful question. She said, Miley, you're very famous with your Hannah Montana show and all this stuff. How are you going to keep from falling into the trap that all these childhood stars fall into? And Miley Cyrus, I'm quoting her, said, my faith. My faith is going to keep me on the right track. But the truth of the matter is, it hasn't happened. Now, Miley, like a lot of us, may come back to the Lord. I know she's been you know, exposed to the Bible and the gospel. But the sad reality is, is the world can take us and chew us up and spit us out. And I think Lydia had seen enough I think she realized that people with money and high-end garments and everything, they're as empty as anybody else. It's not the money that satisfies. It's not the high-end living that's really going to produce hope. And so she's drawn to this little band of women who worship the God of Israel. It says there she was a seller of purple fabrics. She was a worshiper of God, a successful business person, but yet still seeking the Lord. And she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart, verse 14, to respond to the things spoken by Paul. I want you to notice, Paul brought the message, she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart. I think her heart was opened, and the Lord opened it more, and confirmed the message, and said, Lydia, everything that you've been drawn to, everything that you've been looking for, everything that drew you to the monotheism, the, the worship of the one true God of Israel is found in the fulfillment of Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Paul preached it, and Lydia listened, and her heart was open. And that day she became a transformation story. 
when she and her household had been baptized. So obviously the story is condensed, but she heard, she responded, and then there was a baptism. She urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I love that language. Think of Paul and Silas, and Paul thinking of the history so far of his missionary journeys. They're kicked out of everywhere. Run out of cities, stoned, beaten up, kicked out. And then somebody says, hey, come on in and have some dinner. All right, if you insist. They had to be walking along saying, we finally got invited into some place. Usually we're kicked out of everywhere. This is great. Okay, if you insist, we'll come for some, some dinner. Great. Now notice that her and her household were baptized. The implication of Lydia is that she's probably a widow or a single woman at this point in her life. She may have children. She may have servants. The evidence is that the church of Philippi met in her home. Remember, there's no church buildings. They either met in the temple courts outside or in a home. And Lydia's home probably was the church building for the church at Philippi. And so Lydia invites them in. Her whole family's baptized. And just a side note for those of you who are interested, this is one verse where some of our evangelical friends make a case for infant baptism. They say that because Lydia responded as kind of the head of the house and all her household is then baptized, there's an assumption made, and this is where you have to put on your logical thinking cap. The assumption is there's probably kids in the household and maybe even infants, and so therefore infant baptism, here's the case. And the fact of the matter is it's not a good case. There's way too many assumptions made. We don't know who the household was. We don't know if there were young children there. We don't know if they were servants. We don't know how old they were. Uh, so there's too many assumptions to make a good case for infant baptism here, but you do need to know that this is one of the places where our well-meaning brethren would say this is a case at least to consider for infant baptism. Well, I think the implication here, and I want to contrast this with verses 32 and 33. Skip down there for a second. We'll get there in a minute, but it says... Um, They spoke, 32, the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and his household. I think the implication of this verse would say that there is an assumption that the word is spoken to the rest of the house, then they all get baptized. That's my point. I'll leave that for your own study, but you just need to know that that, this is one of the cases. So, Uh, Lydia, her household, they hear the word, they get baptized. It had to be a joyous time of baptism. We have eight uh, teenagers getting baptized at the third service, by the way. It's going to be an awesome time. We're we're excited about it. And so she urged the beautiful uh, idea of hospitality here. She wants to bless these guys back. And so she says, please come and stay in my house. Many of you will remember that in Philippians 4, later Paul will write, nobody really shared with me in the giving and receiving except you Philippians alone. And he talks about how their offering to his ministry had had become a sweet-smelling aroma to God, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to the Lord. And Paul uh, talked about this church supporting him when no other churches did. And think of Lydia. And think of the other stories we'll see. This, This was the church. And Paul said in Philippians 1, every time I think of you guys, I think of you with fondness and I pray with you and I remember what God did in this region. 
Just beautiful stories of transformation. So there they are. Sure, they had a wonderful lunch or dinner and spent time uh, just rejoicing in the Lord. Verse 16, second story of transformation. The first is Lydia, the businesswoman. Maybe you can relate to her. Verse 16, and it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, so notice the pattern. I think they're going back to the riverside because that's where people met. A certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us. And I want you to write down or mark the word met us because I think it's a confrontation, a clash, similar to the language of Luke 8.27 when the Gadarene demoniac, just as they got out of the boat, he met them uh, filled with a legion of demons. If you would like to listen to this message, or if you would like more information about the ministry of Living Truth, please visit our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org. Well, Acts chapter 16 is a great chapter, verses 11 through 40, and really what we have in this chapter is three portraits of a transformed life. Three different people from different backgrounds, all touched by the power of the gospel. And this is the beauty of the gospel, that uh, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you've come from, doesn't matter what your bank account says, doesn't matter where you are in life, where you are geographically, where you are financially, what the color of your skin is, uh, your background, whether religious or not, you can have your life transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And Acts 16 is a great reminder of how God works in different people's lives. The first person is Lydia. Maybe you're a little bit like Lydia. She seemed to be very well off, a businesswoman, um, a worshiper of God, um, hungry to know God, and, and God set it up so that she could come to know the Lord. And she found peace and opened up her home uh, to Jesus' uh, teaching and uh, to the church. And her, her home was probably the... Uh, the base for the Philippine church. And so what a beautiful story Lydia is. Maybe you're a businesswoman. Maybe you are driving home in traffic. Maybe you're driving to work. Maybe you're wondering if life has anything more than just making money and wearing business suits or attire and being in meetings and and going home to the same loneliness and emptiness every night. Maybe you've been trying to fill it with all the wrong things. And maybe you're like Lydia. You know there's something out there. You know You know there's a God who made you. You can sense it. He's been tugging at you. And you're ready to make that decision. Are you like Lydia? If if that's you, open up your heart to Jesus Christ. Open up your home to doing ministry. And he'll transform you from the inside out. He'll show you what life is all about. Thank you for listening to today's program. Our mission is to get the truth of God's Word out. This is our passion. We want to impact as many people as possible, and we have an opportunity to expand this radio program, and we need you, the listener, to partner with us in prayer and in giving. You can give to our ministry through our website at livingtruthcorona.org. That's livingtruthcorona.org.